Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. So it's interesting with the Oilers that year, it looked like 16 of the 21 teams actually made the playoffs. So even if the Oilers didn't do that great, I think they made the top 16. So they made the playoffs. Is that right? That is correct. You know, it wasn't very often that an expansion team who was stripped of all their good hockey players and allowed to keep two or three players, that was it, ever made the playoffs. Edmonton with Glenn Sather leading the charge. Guys like Gretzky that very first year. And Gretzky tied for scoring lead with 136 or 137 points that year. That team made the playoffs. And they had that core of a nucleus of the hockey team. And every year their chief scout's name was Barry Fraser. And Barry Fraser and Glenn, they kept adding a few more pieces to the pie. That is one thing that the Oilers did very well. Their scouts were outstanding. They would find those gems, whether, you know, it was in the early part of the draft or later. They they picked some good hockey players and they formed one of the dynasties that had won the Cup many years in a row. They did very well that team. So I know when you had your episodes on the Montreal Canadiens, you had some interesting locker room stories or... Road trip story. So, are there any that you can remember from your time with the Oilers? You know, when I when I think back about uh, the time with the Oilers, we had a very young team. The guys were wild, meaning they would work hard and play hard, and it was a it was a good team atmosphere. And Glenn Sather was always he knew what he had, and he knew he was smart enough to let these guys be themselves, and he would rein them in when he needed to rein them in, and he taught these guys how to how to be professionals. But when I think about stories, I, I, I have stories, but there's things that I obviously can't share. But one of the things that always bothered me that uh, I will share is when you travel with a hockey team or sports team, the media, the sports reporters for the local papers, they travel with you. And, you know, they're always around you. And it was unwritten that, you know, unless we're giving them a story, if they happen to overhear something, it was not to be put in the newspaper. But this one reporter, there was a guy when I played in Montreal, that his name was Brian Ingwell. Brian was a defenseman. Outstanding person. Like, he's one of the finest guys you'll ever meet. Wonderful. Uh, Brian's from Winnipeg. I played junior against him. Great, great hockey player. And he played in Montreal probably five, six, seven years. And there's a lot of pressure playing there. And you get Bowman yelling at you all the time. Kudwell yelling at you all the time. He just had enough of that. He just had enough of that. So he called me when I was in Edmonton. And he said, Cam, he said, could you talk to Glenn Sather and get me out of Montreal, please? I, I, I just don't want to be here anymore. I'm just tired of getting yelled at by Bowman all the time. And and keep this off the record. Do not tell anybody that uh, other than, you know, Glenn. Or just make sure it doesn't get to any reporters. Because if it gets in the papers, I'm in a lot of trouble. So we were on the team bus. And I was sitting with Messier. We were in like uh, the third, fourth, fifth row from the front on the left side of the bus. And this sports reporter, 
was on the right side of the bus, about three rows down from, you know, maybe was separated by two rows. And I'm talking to Mess, and I was just filling him. I said, you know, it'd be great. I got a call from Brian Ingblom, and Brian, he's uh, he's asking if I can get Glenn to see if he can make a trade for me. He'd love to play for the Oilers. And frankly, Brian would help us. I don't know if Montreal would ever let the Brian go. But he's asked me to talk to Glenn, and I said, so I relayed that to Glenn. I was just talking to Mess, right? The very next day in the paper, there was a picture of Brian Ingblom with an article that said, Cam Connor said, and so what this reporter did, is he sure broke our trust or my trust. He was overhearing what I was telling Messi, and he wrote it up in the paper. And the, it went across Canada. So Brian Ingram phones me and said, Cam, what are you doing? This was in the Montreal paper, and the Canadians had called me in. I just denied everything. He said, but uh, what are you doing? And I told him. I said, I didn't tell this guy. He overheard. And now, you know, here's the double standards. Because if I was a Gretzky or one of the key guys on the team, this reporter wouldn't have dared gone ahead and did what he did and put the quote in the paper. But because I was a foot soldier, he felt he could get away with it, and he put it in there. And you know what? It was uh, Brian Ingram that he hurt a lot more than me. But Brian knows I'm a, you know, I would not lie, and I told him I did not tell the press. I only talked to Slats and one other guy, and they didn't tell the press. This guy, he was listening on the bus, and that's where he got this from. So that was one story that always bothered me, and you could tell it still bothers me that uh, this guy would dare write something in the paper about that. So whatever happened to that player, did he get traded soon after? No, I think Brian played there a few more years, and... uh I'd have to look at his stats, but uh, fine, fine. I know Brian is a color commentator for one of the networks now, but he's just a great person. And he must have won a lot of cups with the team, so it's not like he was playing for the last place team. No, exactly. And again, it was an honor that he wanted to come play with the Edmonton Oilers, but, it, you know, not having this reporter put it in the paper, but I guess the guy was trying to make himself look good with uh, having scoops. So for the other episodes that we did, like the New York Rangers and Montreal Canadiens, we went through some key players that you played with, and you were lucky enough to play with some amazing talent, as well as a pretty interesting coach who's in the Hall of Fame now with Glenn Sather. Do you have any Glenn Sather stories that you could share? Well, I don't know if the word is stories. I probably have some stories, but more like observations. You know, when I think back about Glenn Sather, he was somebody who was smart enough to know that the way you get better if you're management is to try to hire people that are as good, if not better, than yourself. He never was on an ego trip. He wanted to win. In fact, I remember Glenn told me with Pockington there when I was playing for him, he said, we are going to win the Stanley Cup within five years. And I remember going, oh, yeah, for sure. I didn't mean that. There's nobody's going to win it from an expansion team and you win the cup in five years. Doesn't happen. Well, damn it. They won it, I think, five years later. Glenn called it. But he always would surround himself with good management from scouts to assistant coaches to coaches. Glenn was not afraid to have people better than himself in his organization. He was secure in himself. And that's why he's been successful, because he has the confidence as a person. You know, you know Glenn's in charge. 
but he would surround himself with great people. And when you get some young talent, it's just like with the wild horse, with Messier, for example. Mark was raw talent. Kevin Lowe was raw talent. And Glenn, it's like a wild horse. You don't try to tame that wild horse. You just channel that energy in the right direction. And that's what he did with Mark and Kevin and others. You know, you don't try to break that wild horse. You use that that intangible that they have and channel that energy in the right direction. So he was smart enough to do that and to recognize how to coach these young players. And he was a player and then a coach. Do you think there's a big difference between coaches that have maybe only played up to junior, but then somehow get to coach in the NHL versus someone who's actually played? You know, right off the bat, I would say there is a big difference, but I think, and don't ask me to name them, Chris, but I know there are some coaches that, uh, like Burns, that used to coach Montreal. There's people, I think Scotty Bowman, he never played in the NHL. So there was enough coaches that were successful in their own way that never played in the NHL. So I would have to say it's certainly not a negative to be able to say you played at the highest level possible. And you bring that insight to you, to to coaching and developing your team, but it seems to me that it doesn't have to necessarily be the only way you, you can make it. You know, when I look at Glenn, it was pretty funny, and and I think about Dave Semenko. Glenn would be in the dressing room giving us all hell about something and serious, and you know when coaches are mad at you, you don't say a word, you just listen until they're done. I remember. He would be giving the team hell, and then he'd say something about Semenko and you, Semenko, and he did that, and he'd say whatever. And Semenko, he would just sit there, listen, and then when Glenn finished, Semenko, he had the best one-liners. He would say something to Glenn, and it would totally disarm Glenn. And not only would Glenn start laughing, but the whole dress room. So I think even Glenn recognized what a character Semenko was, you know, I've said before, Glenn wasn't somebody that, excuse me, Simmons wasn't somebody that, you know, could talk to you about world affairs. But don't ever exchange wit with that guy. He was the best. And then also, you know, when I think about Glenn as a person, when he went to the Ranger organization and my career is over, but I needed to talk to Glenn about a few things, I would phone him. And a couple times I phoned him on the game day and I didn't even realize it was game day. And he would always, and, and who am I? You know, I'm not the Gretzky or Coffee or Lafleur by any means. I was just a foot soldier that had to work hard to stay there. But Glenn would always phone me back within two hours of my phone call. I appreciate that way more than he even knows that he made me feel like I was somebody and he would treat people like myself with respect. I always appreciate that about him. You know, he was always honest with his players, and he'd tell you the truth about where things were. Glenn, he was really a professional, and uh, the day he retires, the hockey world is going to lose a a very good hockey person. So you've mentioned Marc Messier a few times, uh, and I know you've kept in touch a little bit throughout the years. So is there anything you can uh, remember or want to say about Marc Messier? Well, you know, I've talked probably about Mark in the past, and uh, Mark is uh, 
he's grown under Glenn Sather over the years. He's grown as a person by hanging around with the Kevin Lowe and a, a Wayne Gretzky. Mark, he can do it all. He speaks well. He has confidence. He treats others very, very well. Mark was my centerman. I got to know Mark when he was 18. And whenever I approach him and I go to talk to him, he always gives me time and he makes me feel like I'm special. And, you know, Mark's got a big fan in me. I, uh, I love his leadership ability. I love that he's got fire in his eyes when he plays. He wants to win and he will run you over. That's another thing. For a guy that has his ability, he has a mean streak in him too. And so when he was younger, he would stick guys, he would run them, he would fight them. That's a rare quality in a, in a fellow that uh, can score goals and make plays. So Mark had it all, and he's not conceited. Again, he treats everybody well. That's, that's kind of what I, when I think of Mark Messier, I think about the strength that he had physically. I've talked before about us wrestling and how I have to do the best I can to get Mark on the ground. But really... He's got a lot of class, and he treats everybody with respect. God bless him. So if anyone wants to hear about Wayne Gretzky, you have a whole episode dedicated to him on episode two, which is our number one downloaded episode that we have so far. So I guess that's a good one, but is there anything else that you have to mention about Wayne Gretzky? With Wayne, I just know he's a classy guy when he comes into Edmonton. He, again, will go out of his way to talk to everybody. Players that have played the game, but he doesn't really know, he'll walk over, introduce himself, and make you feel important. So those three guys, I've mentioned them numerous times. The Gretzkys, the Lowe's, and, and the Messies. They were class people that learned from each other, and I really believe that the three of them, well, maybe not Gretzky, he, he was always destined to be the best but I really believe that Kevin and Mark benefited from having Gretzky around. So speaking about how classy you think Wayne Gretzky is, I know we've discussed how you were asked to comment and be included in his most recent book, but there's an interesting story of when Wayne was in Edmonton just last month where your name came up. So if you want to share that story, it's pretty interesting. Well, I, I don't know if anybody cares to hear it, but it, it's, you know, it's probably, it was a little exaggerated for sure, but it's nice that Wayne's thinking about me. One of the things that the players do is if I'm in another city talking about, you know, to a group of people and maybe there's a former coach or player that I played minor hockey with, or I would always acknowledge and get their name mentioned, uh, you know, when they're sitting in the audience, especially if I'm in their, the city that they're living in, just the, give him a little pat on the back. And I think that's what Wayne recently did. He was in town within the last month and he was invited to, I think he has like 40 dates with TD Bank. He's under contract. And so he was in Edmonton and some of the individuals that bank with TD were invited to come and meet Wayne Gretzky, get the picture taken. And so recently I had a friend of mine that was invited to go up and get a picture with Wayne and, uh, he, he, he told me about this at work the next day that he, he went up to get a picture and he said, well, you know, uh, I work with an old teammate of yours and a friend. And he said, oh, who's that? He said, well, it's Cam Connor. He says, oh, Cam, does he live in Edmonton? He says, yeah, he sure does. He said, oh, I didn't know that. He said, well, make sure you say hi to him for me. So anyways, uh, 
they left that room after the photos were taken, and, and Wayne had a question and answer. He was sitting uh, on a stage, and then the pr- probably 200-some people were in the audience, and they would be given a mic, and he'd ask Wayne questions. One of the questions, as I recall, uh, I was told, is one of the individuals said, well, Wayne, you know, you've always been a good hockey player as a kid. Did you always know you are going to make the NHL? You set records as a youngster, and... You know, did you did you just know you're going to be in the NHL? <laughs> and he says his response was, "You know what? I never knew that I was going to be in the NHL. I always worked hard. It was my goal to be in the NHL. But until you make it, I just wasn't sure if it was going to happen and if I would do good." He said, "Unlike guys like Mark Messier and Cam Connor, who it was a given that they were going to make the NHL. <laughs> so you know, he." He just gave me a plug because it wasn't a given. And when I got drafted so high, I had to, I read it in the paper and I was shocked. And so, Wayne, thank you for making me feel good, buddy. Yeah, that's a nice story. So, why don't we talk about Lee Fogelin? And I know that you actually reconnected with him uh, at the Dave Semingo funeral, and he's someone you respect a lot. <laughs> I don't have any stories about Fogelin other than we were. Roommates and Foggy is uh he's a salt of the earth. He's a good family man. He treats everybody with respect. We were roommates on the road. We hung out, and you're right, Chris. Uh, we did connect again. Unfortunately, it was at Dave Semenko's funeral. You know, people ask me all the time, "Hey, you guys all stay in touch?" And, and the answer is, you know, I, I I would say for the most part, yeah. There's some guys everybody stays in touch with each other that you're tight with. But with a guy like Fogey, it, was, it did my heart a lot of good to see him again. I hadn't seen him in, oh, man, 30, 40 years. And it, it was just 30 years anyway. So it was just wonderful to be able to – I didn't even recognize him because, you know, we're all getting older now. But once you start looking at him closely, you go, well, that is Fogey. And, and it did my heart a lot of good to connect with Fogey again. But I don't really have any stories about Fogey other than – he beat me a crib all the time, every time we played, so I will And his son passed, right? His son was playing, was a top junior player? Yeah, he, then... he was, yeah. yeah. And that's something I wasn't going to bring up because I know it's still painful for Lee. I know that Lee was never the same after he lost his boy, neither was his wife. But, uh, it hurt him as it would anybody else too. So we'll skip past Dave Semenko because if you want to hear some Dave Semenko stories, that's actually episode one, unless there's anything we haven't covered on him. Chris, keep putting me on the spot here. I think I've said all my Semenko stories. Yeah. I mean, Do you have any thoughts on someone who stayed in hockey for his entire career from playing to management, and that's Kevin Lowe? And the other guy was Dave Semenko. He was uh, he, he he also stayed his whole career with the Oilers pretty well. Got traded, came back. When I think of Kevin Lowe, as I've said a few times before, he was 18 years old when I uh, got to play with him. He was somebody who I always knew was going to end up in management. He would handle himself way better than any 18 year old uh, when talking to reporters, when doing a television interview. He could speak French. Fluently, he had a lot going for him when he played the game. Kevin wasn't the toughest guy, but he played tough. He showed up every night. It didn't matter if we played the tough teams or a skating team. 
He took the body. He showed up every night, and that's all you could ever ask your players is to show up. And so when I think of Kevin Lowe, I think of nothing but positive. He went into management, and he was in charge of the Oilers when they had, what is it, 25, 35 different owners that owned the team, each threw in some money. That has got to be hard working for those number of individuals. Uh, now with Daryl Cates taking over, things have changed immensely. I thank Daryl for everything he's done for the alumni, and I thank Kevin Lowe for everything he's done for the alumni. And so the last person that uh, we'll talk about is Peter Pocklington. So for people that aren't based in Edmonton or aren't aware of who Peter Pocklington is, can you quickly mention who he is and if you have a, a couple things to say about him. He was definitely a character. Well, he was a character and Peter was a businessman. I know if you live in Edmonton and you worked for, I think it was Gain, Gainers or the Packers, it was alleged that he screwed a lot of people out of money. I know he owned car dealerships and I've heard different stories. I think that one of the stories I heard about Peter was I think it was Glenn Anderson. Peter wanted to sign him to a contract and Peter threw in some land that he owned and and Glenn Anderson said, okay, I'm not against, uh, you know, having land thrown in there instead of cash. Where is this land? And Peter told him, I'm not telling you till you sign. You know, you just got to shake your head at that. So who in their right mind is going to sign and find out after the fact, you know, where this piece of property was. But the other thing when I think about Peter, you know, he was a little bit slippery. Um, you know, there was rumors that when they won their first Stanley Cup, that certain people had diamonds in their ring and the trainers all had, you know, zirconium in there. And uh, I think that was a good story, too. I think that was real. And I'd heard that Wayne Gretzky actually put up his own money and he uh, bought some of the trainers, had real diamonds put in. So if that was true, Peter, shame on you, buddy. Trainers are much part of the team as anybody else. One of the things that... Uh, I, I do remember reading the newspaper when I was out of hockey and Peter still owned the hockey team. I was reading the sports page here in Edmonton and one of the articles was talking about how, and I'm going to go back, I believe it was Glenn Anderson again, and signed an eight-year deal with the Oilers and after X amount of years, he realized that uh, the salaries had gone up way higher than what he was making and he Glenn wanted to renegotiate his salary. And uh, Glenn has said, you know, once you make a deal, you should be a man of your word and live out the terms of your contract and what you signed for. Because at the time, you were pretty happy with it and things have changed. Which, you know, I, in theory, I, I agree. You know, if you've signed it, then you got to live with it. And then I turned up two or three pages in the newspaper. I turned the pages and then there was a headline. Peter Pockington wants to renegotiate his Northlands deal. Says he's got the highest rent in the league, and uh, so he's come back to Northlands to renegotiate. How ironic that he's, uh, you know, on one side, he's, he's giving Glenn uh, Anderson hell about renegotiating and stick with your deal. And then he's doing the same thing, trying to get a better deal out of Northlands. So that uh, was pretty funny that that was in the paper at the same time. So I always remembered that. And then this was a personal story, and I'm, I hope to not bore you with this one. But it was kind of interesting. Out of Winnipeg, when I was there in the offseason, 
My wife had heard about this psychic named Doc Doby, and she was supposed to be the very best at Winnipeg. She worked with the with the Winnipeg police and helping find bodies and lost children. She was really good. So my wife said, well, I'm going to go there and uh, meet with her, and I'm not telling her a thing. I'm not telling her we live in New York or anything. So she went in, and, and this Doc Doby allows you to write down whatever she tells you. So some of the things that I recall that she told my wife, Sherilyn, was that uh, you live somewhere where you're near water. And sure enough, in New York, we live three minutes away from the ocean. And your husband does something for a living that people either clap for or boo. Well, that was amazing. She figured that out. She didn't know a thing about me. And so obviously, being a hockey player, you get booed or they clap for you. One of the things she said is that you live in a little city or town that starts with R. Well, that was wrong because we lived in a place called Portchester. But when we drove back that summer to Portchester, over the summer, they changed the name Portchester to Rybrook, New York. So I'm going, holy cow, this is pretty good. And then the other thing, which relates to Peter Pockington, she said, your husband always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Tell him never to go into business with a person whose initials are PP. And so I was thought about that. That's Peter Pocketon. That's got to be him. So many, many years go by, and I moved back to Edmonton in about 1990. And I do want to be an entrepreneur. And I have visions of a driving range in ahead. Some pretty unique ideas as to how to make this successful. I did all the research on how much money I would need to buy land and to put up netting and build a clubhouse, etc., etc. So I actually brought out a couple of the ex-Oilers. Uh, well, one was Charlie Huddy, who was still playing, and Dave Hunter. And, and I gave him a tour of this piece of property, and there was a house on this property. It was 32 acres within the city limits, and it was across from a golf course, and it was for a really good price, and, and I and I shared my vision and what we could do, and they both said, you know what, that's a great idea, but, you know, one didn't have any money, and one said he lost 20000 in investment a couple years before, so he didn't want to spend any money. And, you know, there's no right or wrong, it's his money, but obviously he just signed a $2.6 million contract, so he wasn't an entrepreneur, and that's fine. So I wanted to go ahead. I had just enough money to do this thing myself, put up a driving range. But if it rained all summer, I was dead in the water. I had no extra cash, and I really didn't want to borrow it. So I said, you know what? When I played with the Oilers, Peter Parkinson always told me that if I ever wanted to go in business, he'd be willing to go in business with me. So I said, I'm going to phone Peter. So I phoned Peter up, and uh, his receptionist said, Oh, Cam, he's just on the phone. I'll have him call you back as soon as he gets off. So I'm waiting for Peter's call. Probably 20, 25 minutes go by. And then I remember what Dot Doby told me. She said, Never go into business with a person whose initials are PP. So being a little superstitious that Dot Doby got uh, a lot of things right, I did phone uh, the receptionist back and tell her, you know what, I got my question answered. Peter doesn't have to call me back. Would have been interesting to see if what would have happened, because that definitely would have been a good investment. Whether it was with the right person, we'll never know. Well, you're right about that, because that piece of property I was looking at, it is all housing now. The real estate agents bought the golf course out as well. 
I, I seriously, we would have made millions. I knew it was the way to go, but you know, I talked about it and didn't do it, and, and that's the difference between successful people and non-successful. The successful ones, they won't talk about it; they'll do it. So it is what it is. So let's wrap this up with uh, any final words on the Oiler team now. I know they have some impressive players. They're the home team of where we live. So do you have any thoughts on the Oilers now? Yeah, you know, Chris, I, I actually do have some thoughts on it. And, you know, you could talk to the fans. You could get 18,000 different opinions on what's right and what's wrong with the Oilers. And at the end of the day, it's the Oilers management and their coaching staff. It's their opinion that counts, and uh, they're getting paid to steer this hockey team in the right direction. But if I was to throw my two cents in, and maybe the word is something, you know, maybe maybe it's just my little insight into what I think I'm seeing right now. But the Oilers, they were they're a good hockey team. If you look at last season, how well they did, they did exceptional. Nobody thought that they were going to do as well as they did, and some of the key players. They showed up and they did outstanding. And, and especially when you think of Connor McDavid and Dreisaitl and a few more of the guys, they, they really stepped up and did well. And so when the teams are playing the Oilers today, it's the same thing that happened when I played with Montreal. When I played with the Canadians and I just came from the World Hockey, every game we played was a dogfight because we had won the Cup four years in a row. And you could be the lousiest team or the best team, you know, right up there in the top five. And when you played the Montreal Canadiens, you rose to another level or two when you take on that team. I think that is what is happening to the Oilers today. Is they are considered by the opponents as a team that you better bear down when you play them because they've got enough firepower. They show what they could do in the playoffs. I believe that they're only one or two players away from really getting into the top five in the NHL. And so when you get teams that come in and they see this new arena and they see that every seat is sold out and they see the passion that the fans have for the hockey team and they know they got to face Connor McDavid, these guys show up and they are ready to play a 60-minute hockey game. And that's what I think with the Oilers now. they got to realize that they are a good hockey team. But the other teams, they realize that. So you're not going to go out there and find any really weak teams. There will be some nights where maybe a goalie can't stop the puck on the other side. But overall, these teams, when they're coming into Edmonton, this is not an expansion team they're playing. This is a good hockey team. They know it. They know the type of personnel that the Oilers have. They know the speed they have. They know they got good goaltending, and I think that these teams are taking the Oilers very, very serious. So these Oilers have to be prepared to know that every single hockey game that they're going to play, it's not going to be any easy games because the Oilers are that good and the other teams recognize it. Okay, well, we'll see how the Oilers do as the year progresses. Your Vegas predictions going pretty well so far, so we'll see if they make the playoffs like you've predicted. But I think we'll wrap this up. So thanks for all your memories of your time with the Oilers. And until next time, I'm Chris. And I'm Cam.